following message was given by Robert Green on Sunday, November 19th at Redemption Hill Church. For more information about the church, visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com. Let's play a quick game. I'm sure you guys have already had your coffee. It helped to wake up the other services who hadn't had their coffee yet, but we'll do it anyway. I'm gonna say a, speak a sentence, but I'm gonna stop short and I wanna see if you can fill out the rest of the sentence for me, all right? You ready? What goes up? There you go, why? Gravity, all right? So if I were to say, I don't believe in gravity, but you can believe in gravity, but I don't believe in gravity. And if I were to go up onto the roof of the gym and jump off thinking I could fly, what would happen? I'd fall. You know why? Because even if I say I don't believe in gravity, it's still true. Even if I say it's okay for you to believe in gravity, but for me, gravity doesn't exist. It still does. And it's still true. I'll give you another picture. It may help with where Paul's going to go this morning. If I go into my backyard and I plant a tomato seed and I cover that seed and I water that seed, what should I expect to grow from that seed? Tomatoes. So that even if I say, well, you can believe that that's a tomato seed that will produce tomatoes, but I believe it's a tomato seed that will produce peppers. Whether or not I believe it's a tomato seed or not, what's it still going to produce? Tomatoes, because whether or not I think it's true or not, it is. God has created an objective, physical order to his world. What goes up must come down. You plant tomatoes, you get tomatoes. Why all of a sudden, though, do we get ourselves all ruffled up at the idea that God in his infinite wisdom who created an objective physical order to the world that he created also established an objective moral order to the world he created. And there's this sinful reality, this temptation in all of our hearts. We hear people vocalize it all the time, but it's resident in each of us. We all want to push back against the idea that God's established this objective moral order. And so we'll find ourselves saying things or thinking things, and you can hear it all around you in the world that we live in. Well, it's okay for you to think that's immoral for you. But even if you think it's immoral for you, it's not immoral for me. If you believe that action is immoral for you, then it is immoral for you. But your immoral action that you believe is immoral for you doesn't mean it's immoral for me. You have your belief, I have my belief. Whatever I believe an action is makes it what it is. So if I believe it's okay, then it's okay. If I believe it's immoral, then it's immoral for me and vice versa. There's this thing in our hearts that wants to push back against the reality that God has established an objective moral order to the world and we wanna somehow figure out how we can get around that and play by our own rules. And this morning in Galatians chapter six, Paul is reminding the church that God has established the principle of an objective moral order to the world. Look down at verse seven. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that he will also reap. See, here's what I want you to understand, and I need to encourage myself in it too, because I've got this desire lingering in my heart as well. Deep down inside the heart of every single man and woman on the face of the earth, regardless of whether or not you vocalize the idea of your heart believing that you make actions what they are. Whatever's moral for you is moral for you, but someone else can make it something else. Whether you believe that and vocalize it or not, deep in your heart you know that there is an objective moral standard to the world that you live in. You know it's true. And let me help you see why I say that and how I know that it exists in your heart. If you're an adult here in the room, and if you're like me, you don't watch the news, you don't spend time on social media, you're still aware over the fact, of the fact that over the last 90 days or so, there has been an avalanche of names of men in Hollywood and Washington 
who have been accused of committing sexual harassment and sexual assault. You familiar with that? Let me ask you this question. Do you believe that sexual assault is wrong or just simply impractical? Is it just bad for business? It creates a bad work environment, bad relationships amongst people, so we better put it away. Or is it wrong? That's not rhetorical. You can answer me. You might be afraid to say what you want to say. No, it's wrong. Is it wrong regardless of what the person accused believes about it? Hmm? Yeah? Yeah? So that's not a moral feeling. It's not subjective. It's wrong whether that person believes it's wrong or not. Here's how I know that this resides deep in every single person's heart. They know that there's this objective standard. This is why the entire world, regardless of whether or not they gather together in a local church on a Sunday morning like this or not, this is why the entire world is outraged and not just disappointed in these men. If it was just a subjective feeling that one person got to decide whether it was right or wrong, then we might be disappointed in what people have done. But deep down in the side of the heart of every single person on the face of the earth, we know there's an objective moral order to the world that we live in. Therefore, what these men have done is wrong, regardless of what they believe to be true about it or not. So you can say all you want, that everyone can determine what's right and wrong for themselves, true and false for themselves, moral or immoral for themselves, but the true reality of what is in your heart is going to come out and betray the words that you speak. You know deep down in your heart because you were created in the image and likeness of God that there is an objective moral order to the world we live in. Whatever one sows, that he will reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. That objective moral order flies in the face of the sinful desire that exists in every person's heart to redefine the rules for themselves. So Paul is coming back to the church to say, even here, you've got to remember this. Your actions have consequences. You will reap what you sow. The one who sows, Paul said in verse eight, to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. Now it's important to realize that Paul isn't just making this up. This isn't Paul's hobby horse that he's gonna get on for the church and and begin to create things for himself so to get people to do certain things. This has been true for all of eternity. You can go back to the book of Job, which scholars understand historically to be one of the earliest books written that we have in the Old Testament. And in Job chapter four, verse eight, you'll find those who plow iniquity and sow trouble will reap the same. Paul has already helped us to see the reality of this flesh alive and at work in our own heart, this part of our own heart that craves independence from God, that saves, that craves autonomy and self-gratification. He's already helped us to see in chapter five the things that come out of giving in to that craving for gratification and desire and independence of our heart, what the works of that flesh look like. And Paul is saying for, for all that we sow, all that we plant into those desires of the flesh from those sowing and from those seeds, we are going to reap. You're going to reap from what you sow. John Stott, a British pastor of the last century, so helpful here, in a sermon he gave to his congregation, he said that every single time you and I, remember he's talking to the church, every single time you and I allow our mind to harbor a grudge, every single time we nurse a grievance, every single time we entertain an impure fantasy or wallow in self-pity, we're sowing seed to the flesh. We're planting seeds. Every time, he said, we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist. Only a Brit could write that sentence. It would sound better if I had his accent. Every time we linger in bad company whose insidious influence we know we cannot resist. Every time we read pornographic literature. 
Every time we take a risk which strains our self-control, we're sowing, sowing, sowing to the flesh. So Stott would say that some Christians sow to the flesh every day and wonder why they don't reap holiness. Holiness is a harvest. Whether we reap it or not depends almost entirely on what and where we sow. Stott's touching on something that Paul is going to get to in just a minute. You and I tend sometimes, even in the church, to live carelessly as though what we do and why we do it has no consequence to it at all. And we just think that we can do what we want, when we want, why we want, however we want, and wake up one day down the road and look like Jesus. Paul's saying it doesn't work that way. You sow to the flesh, you will. Doesn't say might, doesn't say could, but you will reap corruption. Now that's an amazing picture. We, we work hard when we're teaching and preaching and to try to figure out in the words that we translate in the Bible and the English that we have, what's the picture that's behind the word that was used to translate? And there's an amazing picture right here. This, this word corruption is used in the Bible and other places and in literature in the first century and it's used to talk about something that disintegrates that comes apart. So think about like a body after it's passed, a corpse. Slowly over time, it disintegrates. The body just ceases to be what it is, what it was. It decays. See, Paul's saying there's a tremendous irony in our ongoing sowing to the flesh. We're sowing seeds to the flesh because we think what it is we're sowing and what it is we're pursuing will bring us the joy, the happiness, the assurance, the security we think we so desperately need however we want. But in the end, the pursuit of our own selfish gratification and independence leads to our own personal disintegration of heart. It leads to our own disintegration of soul. The heart corrupts, the heart disintegrates when you don't honor the way that it was designed. That's what Paul's saying. So don't be deceived. He's talked about deception a lot throughout the letter. It's a big theme throughout the letter. Don't be deceived. I know that sometimes the seed that we sow to the flesh feels good. When you come across a brother or sister like we talked about a couple of weeks ago who's caught in a trespass, whose life is out of step with the spirit, out of step with the gospel, and you come across that brother or sister, rather than helping free them and restore them in their relationship to grace, you take 10, 15 minutes in your own mind to indulge in the fact that you aren't trapped. How much better you might be than they are because look at how they're living over there. It feels good sometimes to do that in our mind, doesn't it? to begin to tell ourselves how much better we are than that person. Do you know what feels good? Taking that 10 or 15 minutes and indulging in that and then going and grabbing somebody else. Talking to someone else about that person. And together now we're feeling how much better and superior we are to that person because we're not caught like that person. It might feel good for a moment and here's the deception. It doesn't look like anything bad is happening, does it? I'm just indulging and tearing this person down. I'm just indulging in a little bit of gossip. It's no big deal. Nothing happened. They don't know I'm thinking it. They don't know I'm saying it. Paul said, don't be deceived. Don't fall prey to that deception. You will reap from what you sow. Don't fall prey to beginning to believe that you can live carelessly however you want. And one day wake up as though nothing ever happened. Don't fall prey to the deception of thinking, well, I'll just repent of that and deal with that later. I'll just, I'll just deal with those things next year. Paul's saying if you think that you can sow to the flesh, if you can think you can plant those seeds and walk away unscathed, you're badly mistaken. Don't be deceived. What you reap, you will sow. See, when you and I begin to believe and live as though the rules don't apply, as though there is no objective moral order to the world that God established, Paul says, do you know what we're doing? Do you know, do you know what we're doing? 
Paul says we're mocking God. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. This is how he established the order of his creation. Your sins will find you out. There is an objective moral order to how he created this world. And I need you to hear this. I'm gonna say something and then I'm gonna show it to you in the verse because you've gotta hear me say it, but then you've gotta see it for yourself to actually believe it if you're gonna hear it. What you reap from the seeds that you sow to your flesh, the disintegration of a heart, the, the physical consequences, you act as though, let's say, just because you know this to be true, you act as though what you eat has no consequence on your health or your body, right? At some point, you're gonna reap the consequences of that, right? Spiritually, you begin to sow seeds to the flesh and begin to believe that there's ultimately no consequences to that. You're going to end up reaping the harvest of your own flesh and you need to understand what you reap in that is not coming from an angry or hateful or vengeful God. That's how we live. We live thinking that when we face these consequences in life, when we face this disintegration of soul or heart, or when we face some kind of physical consequence or challenge, God must be punishing us for that seed that we planted over there. That's not what Paul says at all. The harvest of corruption that we reap from the seeds that we sow to the flesh doesn't come from God. Look at what he says. Paul doesn't say for the one who sows to his own flesh will from God reap corruption. No. That's not what he says. The one who sows to his own flesh will, from where? From the flesh reap corruption. From within ourselves. You and I already have within ourselves all we need to destroy and disintegrate our own soul. It's a, it's a natural consequence to denying the objective moral order that God has established in his world. So let me give you another picture to help you with this. We're gonna linger on this one for a little bit because Paul knew that it was important for the church to understand this. There was another pastor in Philadelphia, his name was Philip Ryken, he's now in Chicago. He was trying to help his church understand this and he stayed right here on this one verse the entire time. He read verses six through 10 but he never left. There's a burden that you feel up here when you're trying to communicate this because it's so important to understand. And he's trying to help his congregation understand it. So he said this, a man can fantasize about taking control of his organization. He comes to think of his colleagues as rivals and he schemes his way past them. But his selfish ambition is sowing the seeds of destruction, not only for others, but for his own soul. Another secretly despises someone in the church. From time to time, they have their petty disagreements, but it's really just a matter of personality as much as anything else. But with every contemptuous thought, they're sowing seeds destructive to their own spiritual health and the fellowship of the church. Make no mistake, those contemptuous thoughts felt good for a few minutes. But it's a product of deception because it leads to their own destructive spiritual health and the fellowship of the church. He said a husband and wife can allow resentment to build in their marriage without ever resolving their differences. They too are sowing the seeds of destruction. Year by year, as they drift further and further apart, they reap loneliness, bitterness, and unbelief. It's not from God that we reap the consequences of our sowing to the flesh. Praise God by grace in Christ. There's forgiveness for those sins, but there are still consequences that often play out for the decisions and the actions that we've taken. Paul isn't undoing grace, but he's speaking about the reality of a moral objective order that God's established. Yes and amen, there's forgiveness for all of those things you've sown to the flesh, but there may still be consequences that you're going to have to live through. And you need to understand God is not being some kind of cosmic killjoy, trying to figure out how to establish the world and establish principles and directions for his people to minimize the amount of joy that you can experience in this life. You need to understand, we say it around here all the time, that God cares more about your joy than you do. 
the way he has established his creation, the principles and the commands that he gives his people, they're all according to his order and they're all for his glory and ultimately our joy. So when he talks about specific things that we are meant to walk in or to put away, when he talks about particular principles that with discernment and wisdom, we need to figure out how to live out, we may not understand why he calls us to one thing and away from another thing, but we can always know that behind it is for his glory and our joy. Which is why he says you need to understand if you're going to sow to the flesh, you're going to reap corruption. But if you sow to the Spirit, the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Now, a caution there, Paul's not saying that we're saved by our work of sowing. He's already spent the majority of the letter reminding us that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, and Christ alone, but our salvation displays itself through the fruit of a changed life. Our salvation isn't because of what we've sown and what we've done but our life reflects the reality of the grace that we have received. What Paul is pointing our eyes to and lifting up our eyes to see the horizon that is out there that he's trying to get us to understand that we have been embraced by is that this eternal life he's talking about is not simply that which is to come when Christ returns and all things are made new. It's not simply just the eternity that we're going to spend with him by grace transformed, the presence of sin and pain gone. It's not just a quantity of life that is ours by grace. It's a quality of life that we experience now even by grace. Jesus said, I came that you may have life and have it to the full. So as we sow to the spirit, we reap by grace the fullness of life that Jesus came to give. Sowing to the flesh, it leads to the disintegration of the heart the disintegration of the soul, but sowing to the spirit, it leads to a harvest of the fullness of joy in life. Little seeds produce big trees. In Isaiah 61, some of you may be familiar that that was the first sermon that Jesus preached from Isaiah 61. First time he stood up in the synagogue and the scroll was rolled out in front of him and he began to preach, they rolled out Isaiah 61 and you may be familiar with part of it. Isaiah 61, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He sent me to to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. You familiar with that? It's kind of the 95 theses. You know the first one, but you're not really familiar with the rest of them. Do you know what he says right after that in verse three? I love this picture. It has to do with what Paul is saying. I promise I'm not preaching a separate sermon. Verse three, Jesus goes on to say, Isaiah 61 goes on to say, and Jesus goes on to repeat, I came to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit. Listen to this. That they, he's talking about the people that are his, the one that God has sent him to live and to die in the place of. Those who would be called by the grace of God through faith in Christ. That they may be called oaks of righteousness. The planting of the Lord that he may be glorified. Friends, if that is not a picture or a vision for your life, your family, for this church, I don't know what it is. That God by his grace and through his spirit is producing oaks of righteousness here. That by his grace and by his spirit in this city there is spreading a forest of oaks of righteousness for his glory in this city. Have you ever seen an acorn? Little seeds have the capacity within them to produce tremendous trees. I am growing increasingly convinced. After a number of years, not only as being a pastor, but being a follower of Jesus, I am growing increasingly convinced regarding the power of ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view. I'll confess that wasn't always the case. 
But I think a faithful definition of what it means to sow to the Spirit is to live a life of ordinary faithfulness to God with a long-term view. It's so easy for us to become deceived and distracted by, so, by, by supposed silver bullets or magic programs or certain things that we can do that will make us who we think we're supposed to be when it's a simple, ordinary faithfulness to God with a long-term view that in the hands of God will bear fruit far beyond our own capacity to see. What looks ordinary and unspectacular to you and I Ordinary faithfulness. Time in prayer. Ordinary faithfulness. Time in God's word. Ordinary faithfulness. Even growing in our wisdom and understanding as we may read other things, other books about God and the gospel. Ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view has the capacity in the hands of God to be turned into something spectacular and lasting. He took bread and fish. How unspectacular was that? A couple of loaves and a little fish. And in his hands, he produced something glorious and lasting for his people. Sowing to the Spirit is the ordinary faithfulness of God's people done with a long-term view for God's glory and their joy. Let me show you specifically. This is for your encouragement, not your guilt. Not, this is for your encouragement. Ordinary faithfulness. Spending time with the Lord in prayer. How many of us would not admit that we would like to grow in our relationship and intimacy with the Lord in prayer? Now what happens is we tend to think that we have to get up at four o'clock in the morning before we have coffee because spiritual people don't do something else first. Get up at four o'clock in the morning, spend an hour on our knees somewhere on our hardwood floor in prayer with God pleading for all kinds of things. And guess what happens? You do it how many times? Once, because you grow weary. He's gonna get there in a minute. Once. Well, how about this? How about we just took 15 minutes? Is that fair? 15 minutes to spend time talking to the Lord Maybe about the state of our own heart, about our family, our friends. How about the place where he sent us to work, the people that are there, the school that he sent us to, the people that are there. What about the city that we live in and the things that are going on in our city? What about the world that he has sent us to? 15 minutes, it won't take very long. It's pretty simple, it's pretty ordinary and unspectacular, isn't it? Well, if we did that 15 minutes a day, do you know what that would amount to? 15 minutes a day. It's 5,475 minutes a year or 91 and a half hours of prayer. Four total days, 24 hours a day, if you were to do it that way. And do you know what happens, what seems so hard, so difficult, so dreary? God begins to change our taste for it. Just like the relationships you establish with one another, it might be difficult at first as you're trying to connect, but the more time you spend talking, the more time you spend to each other, the easier it gets. But ordinary faithfulness, nothing unspectacular. What about engaging with God in his word? What, what about if we, if we began to gather together and do, what, what about if we joined and we began to do the community Bible reading that we talk about around here? Every single day, just opening up God's word, the passage is already laid out for us. We pray to listen to what God is saying. We're not trying to pick it all apart and go study it all for hours. We're trying to listen to what he's saying in his word and walk through it and rehearse for our own heart the picture of the gospel that is there so that we can, in gratitude, repent for what God's done for us in his son and have something to, to encourage one another with throughout the day. It takes, on average, to read those texts 15 minutes. 15 minutes. Now, for the rest of your day, you're thinking about the gospel. You're thinking about what God's shown you in his word. You haven't had to pull out a commentary. You haven't had to pull out another book. You're just thinking about what he's shown you through his word and how you can encourage someone else with what he's shown you and encouraged you by. Now, imagine what that was like over a year, two years, three years, four years. And we're at how much? 30 minutes? Right? Again, this isn't for guilt. What about reading? No one reads anymore, right? If it's not in 140 or 240 characters now, we don't read it. We have a whole library of books in the, in the, in the building and no one ever comes to get them. No one reads anymore, all right? The average adult reading pace, 350 words a minute. But no one reads anymore. So let's use the fourth grade average. You know what the fourth grade average speed, reading speed is? 250 words a minute. 
All right, so you don't read. So we're going to use the fourth grade average. And I'll do the math. Ray can do the math quick. I had to do the math last night. Fourth grade reading, 250 words a minute. Let's say you do it 15 minutes a day. We're still under an hour, right? 15 minutes a day. That's 5,475 minutes a year. So 5,475 minutes a year multiplied by 250 words a minute is 1.3 million words. The average number of words on a paperback book in the Christian genre, talking about the gospel, the Christian life, or the nature and character of God, the average words on a page in one of those books in our library is 350 words. All right, that's how many words are on the page. Watch this. All right, 1.3 million words divided by 350 words per page is 3,910 pages a year. What that means is that you could slowly and feasibly work through over 20 average books on the nature, character of God and the gospel and the Christian life over the course of the year and we're still under an hour, aren't we? We're at best 45 minutes. So do you know what the math told me when I did this? And what was so humbling to me and again, even even now, three services later, brought me to the point of, of tears even last night while I did the math? So more than I ever would want to admit it, my heart is more fascinated by things other than God and the gospel. That's less than one average television show. Crossfitters in here, that's less than one average CrossFit wad. It's not that we don't love the Lord. That's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul's saying. It's not that we don't love the Lord. It's not that we don't love the gospel. It's that something else has taken up the affections of our heart. We have a bigger affection for other things. So when we come to ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view, we grow weary. Because you know what? We see someone else who has a better handle on God's word, who maybe has spent more time understanding different things, whose intimacy in prayer is better than ours. And rather than being encouraged by them and getting around them that we might grow in those things, we're burdened by that and weary in that. And we just look for the program, the magical thing the church is gonna do, the perfect sermon that's gonna happen is gonna make me wake up tomorrow differently. Paul says, don't be deceived. Ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view. An unspectacular Christian life. Little seeds in the hand of God. The providence of God and the grace of God produce oaks of righteousness. So don't grow weary in doing good. For in due season you will reap if you don't give up. Don't grow weary. Don't become slack. That's what the word means. Not slack as in lazy, but like a bow that lost tension. Don't become slack. In a world of instant gratification, ordinary faithfulness, the long-term view. Nietzsche said it first. Eugene Peterson co-opted, so the church won't quote Nietzsche, but it's true. It's a long obedience in the same direction. And it's generally unspectacular. It's generally mundane. But in the hands of God and the providence of God, it produces oaks of righteousness. Little seeds produce enormous trees. So don't be deceived. Don't grow weary. And it's not just in the ordinary faithfulness that we grow weary. Paul says in verse 10, it's easy for us to grow weary in something else. So then as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone and especially those that are of the household of faith. Now there's nothing hidden behind those words. There's there's not some Hebrew there or Greek there that I can unpack and make it say something that it doesn't say. There's nothing obscure there at all. It's as clear and simple as it actually stands. We have this encompassing call to do good to everyone. And there's no qualifier there. It's not do good to everyone who lives in your neighborhood. It's not just do good to everyone whose skin looks like yours. It's not just do good to everyone who speaks the same language that you speak. It's not just do good to everyone who's in the same socioeconomic bracket that you're in so that when it comes back around, they can do good to you. Jesus hammered that. 
Jesus said, if you're only willing to do good and to care for those who can turn around and do the same thing for you, you're no better than the Pharisees and the tax collectors. No, this is an all-encompassing call that God has given his people. Paul's been working it out already. It's nothing new. Part of gospel culture that springs from a heart anchored in the reality of the gospel and stabilized by who Christ is for us now and forever is that as we have the opportunity, which is every single day, we're to do good to everyone. Ultimately, no qualification there. That's why we take time on Sunday mornings to highlight through our living church different ways that people in this local body are taking the time, the talent, the resources that God has given them to seek to find ways to do good to everyone. We'll talk about the Youth Life Learning Centers, the East End Pregnancy Centers. We'll talk about Step Richmond. We'll talk about all different things that are happening through the life of this church seeking to do good to those who are in this city. It's what God's called us to, but we can grow weary there, can't we? Calvin was talking to his church about this weariness and John Calvin said, we're naturally lazy in the duties of love and many little stumbling blocks hinder and put off even the most well-disposed. We meet with many ungrateful people. The vast number of the needy overwhelm us. We're drained by paying out on every side and our warmth is dampened by the coldness of others. Finally, the whole world is full of hindrances which turn aside from the right path. But don't grow weary, he said. How, John? Like, how do we not grow weary? I just got over the hump of not growing weary in ordinary faithfulness and sowing to the Spirit. How do I not grow weary in the ordinary acts of loving people around me? It's the same thing Paul's been saying. It's the same thing the Bible has said consistently throughout. As we are increasingly stabilized by the gospel and anchored daily in the reality of Christ, we are reminded again of God's unwarranted grace to us that he did good to us even when we didn't deserve it, that while we were thankless and cold, God extended his grace to us. As we are anchored in the gospel, the ordinary faithfulness of communion with God and encouragement in his word and reminders of the gospel, we of all people are encouraged in perseverance and endurance to continue to do good because of the good done to us out of a gratitude for the good done to us. Stable gospel people ultimately become what the world looks at to see the most loving and sacrificial people. The gospel frees us to do good to all men, even the exhausting and troubling ones, he said. But here's the thing. Paul knew that we can fall into one extreme or the other. We can get so caught up in the needs of the world around us and what it means to try to fix those, what we think will happen with that, that we might actually ignore the need right next to us which is why he says, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. It's all part of this cascading picture of gospel culture he's been painting. That as we're anchored increasingly in the reality of the gospel, God God springs forth amongst his people this gospel culture of, of mutuality and interdependence, of grace and generosity that we live to love and serve one another, that we're aware day in and day out that we're going to reap what we sow, but we're always on the lookout to be able to do good to those that are around us, especially those that God has connected us to in the church. We were looking out to seek the welfare of one another that we might help bear one another's burdens and have the courage and the stability to get underneath that burden with them, help them bear it through this season, but ourselves not be crushed by it, to have the confidence and the encouragement to be able to step into a situation where a brother or sister has been caught in a trespass and see them restored back into being in step with the spirit and grace. God has put this together and Paul is painting this culture that springs up from the gospel. God has planted this culture in a broken world, and he intends for that culture to spread for the glory of his name. And Paul has reminded us all along that this gospel culture is born out of an anchoring in gospel truth, and that gospel truth comes through the proclamation of his word. I want to help you see this because you thought I was going to skip it, and it's 11 o'clock, so I can take the time. You brought your lunch, right? You thought I was going to skip verse 6, but I'm not. Verse six flows out of verses one through five. 
In verse six is a specific situation and application of what he just said in verses seven through 10. And I wanna try to communicate that in the best way that I can quickly. Verse six says, let the one who is taught the word of God share all good things with the one who teaches. Well, that's not awkward for me at all. Standing up here is the one teaching. So we'll just end, Rachel, grab the plates, we'll do an offering. We'll apply it and be done, right? No, we don't know specifically why, as Paul's painting this picture of gospel culture, of fulfilling the law of Christ, the law of love, where we see one another caught in trespasses and we help to restore them, and we see one another living under a burden that they themselves can't carry, so we get underneath that burden and help them carry it, and so fulfill the law of Christ, the law of love, and then move exactly into verse six. We don't know the situation that was happening in the churches whereby Paul makes an application of that with this, but something was happening. Something was happening in the churches whereby they were not recognizing <clears throat> the, the, the consequences of not being able to come alongside and help relieve the burden of those that they had set aside to spend their time trying to understand and communicate God's word to them. So Paul takes what he just said in one through five, applies it in six, and then unpacks through seven and 10 what that means about our hearts. And I wanna help you see it. I don't know specifically why he said it. There was an issue but I just wanna say broadly, there's no issue with that here. And for that, on behalf of everyone else here on staff who has the privilege of proclaiming the gospel and teaching the gospel and teaching God's word to you, thank you. Because there was a situation that was happening here that caused Paul to have to deal with this. That's not the reality here. But what I want you to see is the intent behind what he says and how it flows through the argument so that you can see the importance of what he's saying all along. Paul's primary interest here and the word of God's interest here is that the scriptures will be faithfully proclaimed because when the scriptures are faithfully proclaimed, men and women are drawn to Christ. In some sense, when Paul says, those who teach the word, that, that's as simple and as clear a job description of ministry as there is. I mean, one pastor said over 100 years ago, and it's true today, ministers are tempted to perform a lot of other jobs. There's pressure to be salesmen, businessmen, musicians, entertainers, comedians, janitors, anything and everything except preachers. And I don't know how much you understand or realize, but trying to prayerfully uncover the meaning behind a particular biblical text and how it fits into the entirety of the message of the whole Bible and then how that message and intention fits with the everyday life that we live here and now every single week. It takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of effort and I could not be more grateful and I would say on behalf of everyone else who has the privilege to do it, we could not be more grateful that you give us the time to do this. And I want you to understand that when Paul brings this up, he's not simply talking about the fact that pastors or preachers or teachers of God's word in the local church should get paid. That's not the heart behind what he's saying. In verse six, Paul uses the word for partnership, the linking together of people for a shared and mutual purpose. There's a mutual participation. So as gospel culture takes root and our hearts are increasingly anchored in the reality of the gospel and who Christ is for us, part of the way we fulfill the law of love, the law of Christ, is by bearing one another's burdens, partnering with one another to bear one another's burdens. There's a mutuality and interdependence there. That's what Paul is talking about here as we set particular people with particular gifts aside to spend time prayerfully trying to discern the reality of God's word because we value God's word amongst God's people as his primary means for the establishment of the church and the advancement of the church and we set people aside, we mutually partner together for our benefit and their benefit. That's what he's talking about. It's a picture of what he just explained in verses one through five. Everyone who's bound together in covenant in the church, in the local church, has the call to participate in the mutuality of the ministry of God's word. One writer said the church that so prizes the preaching of the gospel will make sure that the ministry is free to serve at the highest level of excellence. And you guys do that. And we could not be more thankful. But what Paul did in putting that there on the back end of talking about this law of love and law of Christ and gospel culture and moving into what we just did in seven through 10, 
7 through 10 is an explanation because underneath what Paul is after is what's going on in our hearts. What's happening in our hearts. And I want you to see this because it's how it all fits. It's not like New Testament Proverbs. They're all disconnected. No, it's all one thought and it's hard to see how it fits. So I want to help you see it. Follow Paul's logic. One aspect of fulfilling the law of love and bearing with one another's burdens, specifically the need that was present, let the one who's taught the word share all good things with the one who teaches. Then he goes right into what we saw this morning. Don't be deceived. God's not mocked. There's something that could happen in the heart in relation to how we perceive the resources that God has given us, what they're for and how we sow them. There's some kind of deception that can get into our heart that can cause us to take the resources that he's given us and sow them in a way that's sowing them to the flesh and not to the spirit. Specifically, it's connected with the ministry of this word. And I want you to hear it. No one's made it more clear to me than than John Piper. Piper said, you can deceive yourself for a while that the sowing of selfishness is really going to yield more joy than sowing sacrifice for the sake of God's word. But you're dead wrong. God is not mocked. Your disregard for his word and your use of his trust fund for your personal indulgence will come back on your head like an avalanche. So Paul's saying in verses six and seven, We honor God and we honor God's word when we take the resources that he's given us which might have bought us some comfort or security or prestige and rather give it to the support of the ministry of the word domestically and to the ends of the earth. You see, when we partner together and use the resources that God has given us to support the ministry of God's word that is his primary means of establishing his church here and around the world, We're sowing seeds to the Spirit. But if we're deceived, Piper said, and think that more happiness comes from spending that money on our own private pleasures, then we mock God. And our greed will come crashing back upon us because we reap what we sow. This is how it all fits. What's at stake in your attitude to the teaching of God's word and the use of the goods that God's given you is eternal life the fullness of joy even now. So what do we need to see and what do we need to accept? Paul's not going out quietly because he loves God's people. We need to see and we need to accept that what we sow, we also reap. That our life is a field in some sense and in some sense we're the farmers working that field And whatever kind of seed we sow, that kind we will also reap. And our heavenly father who by grace has loved us and saved us through his son wants us to sow in preparation for a joyful future. I love how one writer said it so much more eloquent than I am. He wants us to know that sowing to the flesh can never work. But sowing to the spirit can never fail. The question that Paul leaves for us in the church is, what are we sowing? What kind of seed are we planting? In some sense, he breaks it down to two bags of seed that our hand can be in. Seeds that are sown to the flesh, seeds that are sown to the spirit. In a moment, like we do every week, we'll give you a couple of minutes to reflect on God's word. Why don't you ask God to help you see? What are the seed that you're sowing in your life? Man, what does ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view look like in you? Are you sowing the seeds of disinterest and apathy? What kind of seed are you sowing? Maybe there's some space this morning for repentance. Paul wants us to understand, God wants us to understand, the harvest will come, and it will come in its proper time. And we don't get to determine that. The will of God determines that. But we need to see, we need to understand that most spiritual produce takes time to grow. A long time. It might be years, it might be decades before parents or teachers or pastors are able to see whether or not their sowing, their work, their deeds, their love has actually paid off for the glory of God. It's what causes churches to run off in so many different directions and quick fixes for things. It's what causes individual followers of Christ to grow so weary. 
It takes time. So listen to the words as we close of the brother of Christ himself, James, writing to the church. Be patient, brothers. Be patient until the coming of the Lord. Watch how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth. Watch how he's patient about it until he receives the early and the late rains. So you also be patient. And I love this. Be patient and establish your hearts. Establish your hearts. Ordinary faithfulness with a long-term view produces stability in the gospel and an anchoring of soul. Establish your heart for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Little seeds produce big trees, oaks of righteousness for the glory of God. You pray for us and we'll have a moment to reflect. Father, help us this morning. I know there are some who came in here whose lives are, are very difficult, who are reaping the fruit of seeds that were planted a while ago, reaping the fruit of seeds that we're still continuing to plant. Lord, I thank you for mercifully drawing us here this morning, for speaking to us through your word, helping us to see, Lord, helping us to see that by your grace there is a different seed to be sown. Lord, thank you that because of your son and because of your grace, there's forgiveness for all of our sowing to the flesh. Help us to see where we continue to sow to our own desires and flesh that we might be able to repent of it and believe that there's another kind of seed to sow. Lord, help us to be people of ordinary faithfulness. Help us to be people with a long-term view. Help us to be a people who love to encourage one another as long as it's today to continue to sow seed to your spirit knowing that in due time you have promised to produce a harvest of righteousness and the fullness of joy. We ask that you would do that miracle in our hearts in this room this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. You've been listening to a message by Robert Green given at Redemption Hill Church in Richmond, Virginia. For more information on the church and to hear other messages, please visit us online at www.redemptionhill.com.